Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Uh, my name is Tony Stoller. I'm the chair of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. Uh, when I say you all, that is those of the over 4,000 people who applied for tickets for this evening, who are present in, in, in this hall, in the overflow, or are watching the live stream of this evening, or who will be watching the podcast. And if I tell you that 2,000 of those applications were received during the first hour that tickets became available, you will understand how we are all feeling about the privilege of being here this evening. We will be streaming live. We are modern technologists, and therefore I'm sure I do not need to remind you to turn your mobile phones to silent, uh, but I will do so anyway. If you wish to tweet about this event, the hashtag is LSEPoverty. We are delighted to be here and working with Prospect Magazine for this evening's lecture. Bronwyn Maddox, who is the uh, editor-in-chief executive of the magazine, will be chairing the question session after Professor Sen's lecture. We're also very grateful to LSE for hosting the occasion this evening. Professor Sen is going to uh, draw upon his genuinely groundbreaking work on poverty and development and is going to examine this evening some of the biggest economic, moral and philosophical issues facing anti-poverty campaigners today. And at Joseph Foundry Foundation, we think we know a little bit about anti-poverty campaigning. We have been concerned with poverty, its causes, and its impact since 1904. And we are currently in the early stages of a major project to develop an anti-poverty strategy for the UK, deploying not only the data, but also the lived experiences of those who are in poverty and those who work with them. It is therefore important and relevant and fascinating for us to be able to hear Professor Sen this evening. And it is my great pleasure and my great privilege to invite him to deliver his lecture on poverty and the tolerance of the intolerable. Professor Sen. Well, I'm very honored to be here and giving this lecture associated with both the Fosswick Magazine and the Roundtree Foundation, two institutions I've greatly admired, and held at LSE, where, of course, I taught for many years. I used to give lectures on principles here. I think I'm missing a blackboard, which was <laughs> very convenient to have. Can I be heard? There's some issue about whether I should have a label no, we don't need it. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Um, the title is Poverty and Tolerating the Intolerable. I think that was the title that was agreed on. For a person born in India, 
persistent encounter with poverty is not escapable. As a child, I had seen huge deprivations of many different kinds. By the time I was nine, I had come to see poverty as a fact of life, even though I had not fully grasped yet how appallingly barbaric extreme poverty could be. It was in my tent here that the Bengal famine of 1943 erupted, four years before the end of the Raj. And the streets were suddenly full of dying people succumbing to starvation and related illnesses. And with that came the inescapable inhumanity to which famished destitutes descend. Coming from a lower middle class family, I was allowed to give a small amount of rice to anyone who came at our door, but felt ashamed that we could not give more. Seeing the starving men and women quarreling with each other for their own share was as demeaning as it was disturbing. I remember an occasion when I was able to give a banana to an extremely emaciated woman with a pathetically skinny child on her lap. After feeling the banana, she instinctively put the banana on her own mouth and then immediately got it out and burst into a piercing cry as she gave the banana to her child. She looked at me through her tears and said, I remember those words very clearly, we are no longer human beings. Our instincts now are worse than those of animals. If poverty is intolerable, it's not just because extreme deprivation makes our lives precarious and dreadful, but also because serious poverty can rob us of the qualities that make us the social creatures that we human beings are. The warmth, care, and concern that bind humanity together are mercilessly smashed by the battle for survival. Given the nastiness of extreme deprivation, there's no great difficulty in understanding why why poverty seems intolerable to us. But there's some difficulty in explaining how, nevertheless, we come to live with it and tolerate something that is so intolerable. Poverty is a tolerated predicament right across the world. (coughs) While the incident of poverty varies from country to country, there is no country that is in fact free from it. The question why we tolerate the intolerable has relevance for every country in the world. For the victims of inescapable deprivation, the question of tolerance does not, of course, typically arise. For the severest underdogs of society, remedying um, their own predicament is not an option that they generally have. Of course, blaming the victim is as common today as it was in the days when the very mild attempts at poverty relief, such as the English war laws, had their staunch opponents, including Thomas Robert Malthus. The centurious critics wanted then that the jobless and the incomeless should look harder for gainful work, as the critics in our time still insist. It's not, however, easy to see 
what the unemployed destitutes can do to reverse their own predicament when so many others are trying to compete for, their, for the few jobs that they might be there or trying to scramble for the rare opportunity to earn a little income. But what about people who are not severely deprived? Why do they tolerate something that is so clearly intolerable? And that question applies to most people anywhere, since the proportion of the extremely deprived is usually relatively small, even in the poorer countries in the world. How do so many people, typically vast majorities in each country, come to terms with the gruesome social situation and go about their own business normally and sleep in peace at night? There's something that demands an explanation here. Actually, I think my script demands being moved. <laughs> because it's just too close, I think I... Ah, okay. Let me first consider some putative explanations that have some plausibility, but which I would argue ultimately do not provide on their own an adequate answer to the question we are trying to address. There is, first of all, the hypothesis of ignorance. The possibility that we do not really know, actually, I have to really get this out. Do you think it can be moved? Okay, yeah, gosh. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> At least they really do not know with adequate clarity what poverty is like and how prevalent it is around us. In this line of explanation, we tolerate the terrible state of affairs unknowingly, at least without adequate understanding. While lack of knowledge may itself demand some explanation, ignorance can, with some credibility, account for our reluctance to do anything to remedy a nastiness of which, in this line of reasoning, we are insufficiently aware. If you have no idea of how the other half lives, and more generally, what predicament other people face, we could fail to address the question what we should do to help the wretched. A second line of explanation focuses not on ignorance, but on a possible belief that poverty cannot, in fact, be removed, no matter how hard we try. The acceptance of the invisibility of eliminating poverty can lull us into inaction, since action would be of no great help in eradicating the offending predicament. Along with this line of reasoning, there can be some diagnosis of what is seen as quote-unquote realism about the impossibility of curing or even substantially reducing poverty. The so-called realists can spend a lot of time not in trying to remedy poverty, an allegedly hopeless task, but in criticizing those whom the realists see as theoromantics, who attempt to do but cannot be done. And in the process, sometimes the self-identified realists argue make things worse rather than better. A third line of possible explanation which does not go either on ignorance or on a belief in infeasibility, 
take the very different route of postulating that human beings are basically self-centered creatures who do not worry about others, and perhaps there is no compelling reason why they should. We may know clearly enough that there are people living in conditions of beastly poverty and associated deprivation and ignominy, and may even accept that we can do something to remove the prevalence of that predicament, and yet decide that we do not have any particular obligation to, any, to do anything to remedy the situation, nor any necessary inclination to change the world that we see around us. If ignorance or a belief in infeasibility provides explanations of our tolerance of the intolerable that are contingent on our knowledge and beliefs, the explanation through self-centeredness invokes a kind of moral contingency which makes poverty not really intolerable to us personally, unless we ourselves suffer from it. A foundationally amb ambitious version of this self-centered approach is that we do not in general and unconditionally owe to others any obligation, weak or st strong, to help them. Such an obligation can arise if and only if the deprivation of the others have been caused by us. Quote, if you have not harmed someone who happens to be deprived for other reasons which have nothing to do with you, why should you, so the argument runs, have any duty to remove the deprivation from which the person suffers? Do these explanations have any plausibility at all? I would argue that they do, and yet they are ultimately inadequate on their own as convincing explanations. This is not to deny that arguments based on ignorance, assumed infeasibility, or presumed absence of obligation to others are, are often powerfully and effectively invoked, not to deny that, explicitly or by implication in the tolerance of extreme poverty. But the epistemic and ethical basis of these arguments are very hard to justify without supplementary assumptions. In discussing the arguments involved, I shall use the example of India, partly because I recently published a book on it, jointly with Jean Dres. Um, it's, a, it's about contemporary India, focusing particularly on poverty and deprivation, but also because India provides a good illustration, I believe, of a country with a numerically large middle class whose tolerance of poverty in the country is a material influence on the slow progress of poverty removal in India. I begin with explanation through ignorance. Very few facts have been as much discussed, at least in general terms, as poverty in India. To be sure, that was not always the case. And indeed, the founder of modern economics, Adam Smith, included India in general, and Bengal in particular, as being among the richest countries in the world. And Smith went into explanation as to how that had happened and attributed it to the fruitfulness of river-based trade, which made the Gandhis and the Indus and the Yangtze different, and the Nile different from many other countries. 
But Smith too discussed the predicament of the poor in India, despite its richness, as indeed he discussed also the diminished lives of the poor in England, Scotland and Ireland. The presence of poor people, even in rich countries, was one of the diagnostic points that Smith discussed with much clarity. The proportion of the poor grew remarkably fast during the period of the British rule. And when much of the rest of the world was progressing economically, the GDP in India hardly moved during the centuries of the Raj. The growth rate of GDP per capita in India during the last half a century of British rule, and that's the period for which good data exists, was exactly 0.01% per year. As Angus Deaton, one of the leading economicians in the world, has argued in his recent book, The Great Escape and the Origins of Inequality, I quote from Deaton, it is possible that the deprivation in childhood of Indians born around mid-century, that is around the time of India's independence in 1947, was as severe as any large group in history, all the way back to the Neolithic Revolution and the hunter-gatherers that preceded them, the conditions of life were just terrible, unquote. Things have moved since then, and India's per capita income today is four times what it was in 1947. But the level is still very low of level of per capita income, and there are huge numbers of people among the Indian population who not only have very low income, but whose opportunity for health care, education, social security are abysmal. And yet the Indian middle class, with comparatively comfortable lives, is quite large, indeed very large, and consists of two or three hundred uh, million relatively well-off people. We're not talking here about Maharajas and India's rapidly growing list of billionaires, but the very large group of people who, uh, who do all right in terms of modern comfort and as well as traditional facilities. One result of having such a large and dynamic middle class is that it has had a huge hold over the priorities and coverage of the Indian media, both the print media and the broadcast channels. The interest and preoccupation of the middle classes certainly make the newspapers very readable and sometimes quite fun, and the television, cables, and radios are lively as well. And I, every time I go back to India, notice how lively they are. And yet a huge side effect of this glitzy focus is the crowding out of what could have been good discussion of the nature, extent, and remediability of India's extensive poverty, which is hardly ever discussed. Income data do, of course, bring out how terribly poor most Indians still are. But to add to the complication in informational reach, the poverty of most Indians relate also to meager and bad health care, limited and low-quality schooling, and other deprivations of public services in a way that does not quite apply to many developing countries, for example, in China or Brazil or Thailand. Indeed, measures of private income 
missed the role of public services in education, healthcare, social facilities, and environmental support, which can make a big difference in protecting people from deprivation and in expanding their freedom. For both these reasons, inequality in India takes the terrible form of a massive disparity between the privileged and the rest, with a huge deficiency of the basic requirement for a minimally acceptable life for the underdogs of society. Elementary facilities of a usable school, an accessible hospital, a toilet at home, or two square meals a day are missing for a huge proportion of the Indian population in the way they are not emphatically into China or Thailand. And yet there is very little knowledge and understanding of how out of line India is in terms of basic public facilities for poverty removal if you go through the media. The silence of the media on this is certainly one of the factors that help the perpetuation of these disadvantages, even when the overall growth rate of the Indian economy is, as it has been for a long time, one of the highest in the world. Having or not having knowledge is not merely a matter of availability of information when sought. In this respect, India has taken a huge stride towards, uh, stride forward through its remarkably, through its remarkably extensive Right to Information Act, one of the most far-reaching in the world, giving anyone access to the huge variety of information involving public affairs, if and when any such data is sought by anybody in the country. But this had not brought the facts of multi-layered deprivation of the vast army of the Indian poor into the political consciousness of the vocal and influential public. Even when the newly formed Ahmadmi Party does miracles in bringing certain neglected issues that worry the middle classes a lot into public discussion, such as the prevalence of corruption and the high price of utilities for those who are connected to the supply of such utilities, the population surrounding the new departure has fairly strong class bias in it. Ahmadmi Party, in this context, is among the privileged, maybe the bottom 20% of the top 20%, but is still the privileged. The achievement of the Ahmadmi Party deserves recognition and appreciation, and I've, I believe strongly in that. But the reach of its coverage calls for very considerable extension if the deficiency of knowledge about poverty in India has to be remedied for widespread public discussion. India is not, of course, the only country with such problems. Though the special nature of the neglect of the poor, particularly their health care and education, is quite unusual in the country. In America, it's very difficult to get the media to take a sufficiently extensive interest in the terrible consequences of the neglect of medical coverage or absence thereof. Or, for that matter, the remarkable presence of serious hunger in the USA, in the richest country in the world. There are similar blind spots in European discussions as well. We have to recognize that having, and in particular not having knowledge, is a much more complicated social issue than the much discussed 
and of course also very important question of censorship and informational availability when sought. I turn now to the second line of explanation in terms of belief in the unremediability of poverty. Many people take the existence of existence and high incidence of poverty as facts about which little can be done, like a sunset or monsoon showers. That hypothesis is very difficult to defend on empirical grounds, since major reductions in poverty have been achieved across the world from Europe and um, uh, uh, USA to East Asia and Latin America to intelligent human efforts. A weaker version of the skepticism takes the form of arguing for single-minded concentration on high economic growth without bothering about poverty reduction with the firm belief that income growth is the quickest and the most effective way of cutting down the incidence of poverty. Some improvements in the lives of even the disadvantaged do, of course, occur with economic growth as employment and entrepreneurial opportunities expand, particularly for those who are not prevented from seizing these opportunities by lack of schooling, by ill health, or social barriers of one kind or another. But public support to the underprivileged is extremely important in general in helping them to overcome these disadvantages and ensuring that the fruits of economic growth are shared widely. Without it, a great many lives will continue to be tormented by hunger, poverty, illness, and other deprivation, despite spurts in aggregate economic growth, as indeed has been happening spectacularly over the recent past in India. The constructive use of public resources generated by economic growth to enhance human capabilities contributes not only to the quality of life, of the deprived people, but also to higher productivity and further growth. In fact, the so-called, quote-unquote, Asian experience, beginning with Japan in the late 19th century in the Meiji period, then South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and eventually all of China, has been based on a skillful use of the complementarity Uh, between economic expansion and human advancement through education, healthcare, better nutrition, and other determinants of human capability. This is a two-way relationship, of which relatively little use has been made in India, thereby not only making the country fall behind in terms of quality of life and social indicators of living standard and falling dramatically behind. We have some tables in our book and uncertain glory, but also making its long-run growth process much more fragile and less participatory than it would have been otherwise. There is, in fact, some tragic irony here, as Ron and I noted in our book, An Uncertain Glory, deep insights about the intimate connection between health, education, and productivity were not at all absent from the visions visions of the pioneers of the economic and industrial development in India, such as Jamsayji Tata. As F.R. Harris, 
the biographer of Tata, describes the conception of Jamshedpu in his biography of Jamshedji. I quote, from the time of driving in the first stake, the Iron and Steel Company assumed the function of a municipality, unquote. Focusing on free health care, decent schooling, provision of safe water, and basic sanitation, among other industrial and social initiatives. A broad understanding of the complementarity between production and productivity on the one hand, and human well-being and capability formation on the other, was also powerfully articulated in the famous report of the Vol Committee, set up just as the British were leaving, on health policy, which we reported in 1946, the year before independence, I quote from the Royal Committee, if it were possible to evaluate the loss which this country annually suffers through avoidable waste of valuable human material and the lowering of human efficiency through malnutrition and preventable morbidity, we feel that the result would be so startling that the whole country would be aroused and would not rest until the radical change had been brought about, unquote. Alas, the country had not been aroused by the neglect of health and education and other public services. On the contrary, this neglect and its far-reaching consequences have received little attention in public discussion over six decades and more of the functioning of independent and democratic India. India has missed out fairly comprehensively on a large part of the lessons of Asian economic development, which have rapidly enhanced human well-being and capability, along with, and indeed as a part of, pursuing fast economic growth. A critical part of the East Asian strategy has been the use of public revenue, itself expanded by economic growth, to remove, to huge, to remove huge deficiencies in social, education, and health services, and to meet the growing demand of social and physical infrastructure, while making public services more accountable, accountable and efficiently organized. China's experience also shows that devoting much more public revenue than India does to, the educa to education, healthcare, and nutrition of the people is compatible with and indeed very helpful for high and sustained economic growth. Comparing India's miserable allocation of 1.2% of the GDP to public expenditure on health with China's much higher figure of 2.7%. What is striking is not only the lack of understanding of the demands of public health in India, but also how limited the understanding of many champions of economic growth are of the precise requirements for fast and sustained economic growth. We are bombarded by deafening rhetoric on quote-unquote the priority of economic growth, with little thought given to health, education, and other aspects of the formation of human capabilities, reflecting a disarmingly foggy understanding of how long, long run growth and participatory development can actually be achieved and sustained. I'm singling out India for illustration in this lecture, but of course the failure to recognize the complementarity between economic growth and human capability expansion applies to many other countries as well. 
I do not have the time in this lecture to discuss how a presumption of an unreal disconnect has plagued the European attempt at overcoming its ongoing economic and financial crisis. I'd be quite happy to come back to that question if it comes up in the Q&A part of today's session, particularly de dealing with the disastrous long-run implications of high youth unemployment and curtailed social services for the future of Europe. I must, however, move on to the third line of alleged explanation of the tolerance of the intolerable. That human beings are incapable of deep sympathy for others and unable to be committed to help others to lead decent lives is an often repeated generalization, oddly enough, about mankind. Peculiarly, peculiar as it might be, that epistemically unsupported and ethically befuddled point of view is sometimes attributed even to the founder of modern economics, Adam Smith, which is, of course, based on reading a couple of paragraphs from one of his books, mostly about Butcher, Baker, and Brewer, and ignoring the rest of his writings. The theory of moral sentiment opens, and these are the first sentence of the book, with the following sentence, I quote, Howso, Howsoever selfish man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortunes of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it." Unquote. Smith's analysis is further developed as the book proceeds, The Theory of Moral Sentiment, and he makes particular use of his thought experiment of the impartial spectator as a device for reason self-scrutiny of which he thought human beings are perfectly capable. The invoking of that connection occurs repeatedly in the Wealth of Nations as well, and even in his posthumously published lectures on jurisprudence. The idea that we have moral reasons not to worry about the poverty and suffering of others is hard to defend on any well-reasoned ethical approach, and that applies as much in the case of India as it does to Europe and America and the rest of the world. Indeed, if you reflect on it, the elimination of famines in India, almost immediately uh, with India's independence and the establishment of a functioning democracy, turns on the capability of people to relate to each other. Why? Well, the share of famine victims in total population is always very small. It hardly ever exceeds 10% of the people usually less than 5%. And so the power of voting in a majoritarian de democracy cannot explain why democracy serves as a, such a deterrent to famine. We have to see how the discussion of the agony and the misery of the famine victims resonate with the majority of the people as democracy with a free media allows and encourages public discussion of these outrageous I wanted some time for discussion, so I'm going to conclude now. To conclude, the problem of the limited reach of the media is not one that arises from the inability of people to sympathize with each other. I think the hypothesis of such an alleged disconnect, a moral disconnect that is hard to understand 
is not a particularly useful way of trying to understand how the intolerable is tolerated. We do, however, get more of a help from the hypothesis of ignorance, not arising from the unavailability of empirical information, but from a cultivated social lack of interest, linked ultimately, certainly in the case of India, with its hardened social inequalities related to class, caste, and gender. There are some useful insights also from the role of the belief in unremediable poverty, or more commonly, from letting the market do its job of poverty removal with no role for public effort. These hypotheses are important to consider, not because they have serious empirical support, they do not, but because they constitute parts of a well-established theory that is hard to dislodge despite all the evidence to the contrary. It is, I suppose, some consolation in comparing the three that the tolerance of the intolerable arises ultimately from fallacious reasoning rather than the foundationally unsympathetic nature of human beings. The remedy of defective reasoning is, of course, better reasoning. In that recognition, there is surely some case for celebration. Thank you. So I go. Yes, Amart here, thank you for that um, magnificent tour of the economics and ethics of fighting against poverty. Uh, not just for the retrieval of what Adam Smith really said and how people misinterpret him, but among the lines I've jotted down, uh, one I'll remember is uh, that poverty robs us of, of the qualities that bind society together. And I liked your blunt attack on the nothing-can-be-done view. We've got about 45 minutes for discussion, and I know there are going to be a lot of questions. Apologies to people who are not in this, this hall. Um, but I wanted to start by asking you one or two points and actually asking you about something that you touched on right at the end, which was uh, w- w- democracy and what role democracy has in, um, in helping combat poverty. After all, India, one of its proudest boasts is that it's the world's most populous democracy and the sight of tens of millions of people going to vote is a political spectacle that the world is it's hard to match. And yet, as you've uh, powerfully described, it has not done much to uh, bring about uh, a sustained uh, attempt to improve health and education. Why? Why? Uh-huh. <laughs> I wonder what the question was. <laughs> I was so much in agreement. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, uh, let me get that. Yeah, and that, that matters. That matters. The microphone. Is that all right? Okay, good. Um, you know, I think, first of all, uh, let me begin with the defense of democracy and then a qualified uh, critique of it. Not critique, but qualification of it. Um, in the absence of democracy, we don't know which way you're going. I mean, I think China has done very well recently. North Korea has not. 
done very well in, in growth. No, in, in, in quality of life. In quality of life, yes. Yeah, dramatically yeah. better. Yes. Longer life expectancy, lower mortality, higher level of education, better health care mm. they mm. have. Mm. But whether it will go to China or North Korea or North Korea or South Korea, it's not clear if you don't have democracy. You don't, you don't have it steering. And as you know, China did also have the largest famine in recorded history. Yes. 30 million yes. Yes. people. Uh, that's the uh, largest number of debt I know. I think the largest proportion of debt was the Irish famine, but an absolute number. And that was just uh, directly connected with lack of democracy. For three years, the Chinese carried on a totally disastrous policy without a single editorial against it, without anyone speaking uh, against it in parliament or newspapers, mm. anywhere. So I think um, you take a bit of a risk, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, the Chinese made another big mistake. You see, during the pre-reform uh, period, the Chinese were comprehensively against the market economy. And it's quite extraordinary how little um, understanding of market economy they had, and I happened to be in Oxford when they were reforming it. Seventy-nine, it came. It, they reforming the health. No, they were reforming the, the economy, the, the, the entire economy. economy. Yes. And I spent some time since we used to have a flow of Chinese students explaining how the market works and why that's important. But then, in two or three years, I have to explain that why it worked very well in agriculture and industry, eliminating um, universal health care and asking people to buy your health insurance is not a frightfully smart thing to do. The Chinese got their 100% coverage reduced to 12%. And for the following quarter century, 25 years, between 79 and 2004, the Chinese expansion of life expectancy was dramatically slow. So much that India, coming from behind, mm. almost caught up with China. By about 2004, uh, so it, it took a long time, they decided they made a mistake. I happened to be connected with the Beijing Peking University, actually chair their advisory board for the Development Institute, and it was quite becoming clear that economists were getting very upset about that. 2004, the change, and of course in typical Chinese style, from 12%, they went to 96% <laughs> within about 8 to 10 years. So I think, you know, that's a mixed story. I think the thing to look at in India is whether we are making adequate use of democracy or not. The misinformation that the media has presented, even connected with our book, the book which we published, of course the business media didn't much like it, with one exception, the Economic Times, which is the largest circulation right from the beginning, supported uh, what we were saying. But the other business media were pretty much against it. And the argument was, no, no, that's not the problem. India is a socialist economy, they say. I must say, some socialism uh, with, uh, with half, you know, if the Soviet Union and Vietnam and Cuba did nothing, they put everyone to school, even though we know they wrote about it in, the 19, in 1930 a book that was promptly banned by the British government and would not be released until after independence. Uh, and 
Okay, so they, they were not doing any of those things with which socialist economy mm. were, mm. but they were doing the other thing, namely crippling the market economy. So the so we were, of course, very much in favor of reform, had been before and now. But we said that is inadequate. You have to do education, healthcare, and so on. And the Chinese, oddly enough, provided a very good model for us. Because they were spending much more on healthcare, much more on education, much more on immunization, much more on social security. Now, they have big things, too. I mean, they had uh, one-child policy, they had all kinds of barbarism too. On the other hand, there's a lot to learn from that. Now that was always interpreted by the papers as saying, oh, that's not really right. That they're, they're going back to the old socialist model is what I would have And unfortunately, uh, you know, even before the um, meeting, I was talking with a gentleman who was probably here, and he promised to ask me a question. Um, and I said, that, what do you think is the main, India's main problem? The money spent on social policy. Now, India has an employment guarantee scheme, 100 days employment, and they've just started food security. They could have been much, much better devised without doubt that. How profligate are they? Well, between the two, the employment scheme absorbs 0.29% of GDP. Subsidized power for those who have power connections absorbed between 1.5% to 2% of GDP. The totality of health, sorry, health care, all health care by government, all food subsidy, um, um, all employment, is less than, considerably less, than the money spent for supporting the middle class's lower price of electricity, fertilizer, diesel, on which these limousines on which we are um, driven around, and, yes. and, uh, and, uh, come. and all these spend, spend enormously more. The subsidy economy has to go, but the first thing they would say is food and employment, the only thing that helps the poor a little, and nothing at all taking on the middle classes, and even the armadwis first act was to cut the power for those who are connected. One third of the Indians are not connected to any electricity at all. So should I think from that, that I mean, the, the political classes, if I can call them that, they do understand broadly the point you're making about the importance, or they pay lip service to the point you're making about the importance of health and education, but when that comes up against defensive, entrenched interests... I, I don't think they do... They don't do, do anything uh, about it, or you think they don't understand it? I think that, I, I, you know, I think it's... Um, Understanding is, is a very complicated thing. Uh, very nicely is, put. It's one thing to know it. And I, let me give an example from Pakistan. People knew in Pakistan that in the... I'm talking about three years ago, four years ago, when the Taliban were in control of the Fort Valley mm. and they were doing barbarities, including caning young women. Mm. Pakistan's... Human Rights Commission is an NGO, unlike in India or South Africa, which had a legal status. So some very courageous Pakistani, risking his life, went to one of the canings and videoed it while pretending to make a telephone call. Long, long telephone call. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if he was found, he would have been killed. 
Then he put it in the media. Mm. And within a week, the Pakistani public opinion had gone completely intolerant of this practice. Now, it's not that they didn't know it. They read it in the papers, the girls again. It's quite another thing to see that happening in front. I think what is very important is the, is the art and the skill with which these things are presented. And I think the Indian media, despite its liveliness, I think has failed quite lamentably in that respect. There are exceptions, some do better than others, but basically, and I think it's not so much, it's, I don't think, I'm not a great believer in, in kind of the dark subterrain in our mind that they recognize that there is a problem and then when it comes to their conflict with their own interest, they say, no, 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 we're not going that way. It's just that the perception is much mm. weaker. Uh, and, and this is where democracy's practice needs dramatic change which is, of course, what our book was addressed to do. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I'll ask you just, just, just one more. Um, you've written uh, very powerfully about how you think democracy is um, good in, in itself. It's, a, it's a, an end in itself. But would you, um, would you say that, um, that China's superior growth record in the, in the, past, uh, the, the past couple of decades owes a lot to this, this focus on health and education. Yeah. And, and, and do you think India sees that comparison or understands no. that, that reason why it is behind <laughs> right. You know, they, what the Chinese were doing, I said the, the really original creature on that was the Japanese. Yes. No. After Meiji Restoration in 1868, they went on making statements of public services. In yes. fact, one was the statement, yes. I think he do Kiyabashi, if I remember right is to say, why are Americans much more productive than we are? We're basically the same kind of people. The only thing is Americans are educated, we are not. We have to remedy that. And in 30 to 40 years' time, they became fully literate. By 1913, they were publishing more books than any other country in the world, and twice as many as the United States. Similar thing happened in healthcare. And that, of course, fed the economic growth. Mm-hmm. Now, Koreans got that lesson quickly. They had very low level of education. When people like, um, um, you know, a lot of um, complain about Korea and Ghana with their mm-hmm. usual comparison, overlooked the fact that Korea and Ghana had low level of illiteracy. Koreans went for full education, full health care, in a way that the Ghanaians did not at that time. And, of course, the dramatic change happened. The Chinese were riding on that. And so, uh, do I give them credit tremendously to the leadership, to that they did care and got into that, and especially in comparison with the the Indian um, public discussion. The Chinese didn't have a public discussion. You don't need to. You have to influence 20 people, and that's it. And the 20 people understood what's going on. And India, you can't move unless you influence 200 million people with you. And that requires some media skill. Does that make democracy less efficient? It makes it slower, mm. but it's also slower to uh, 30 million people dying in a famine mm. and all kinds of other things too. So, you know, you have to compare them. It's a mm. complex story. Mm. Thank you for that comparison. All the more um, if the governments don't make it. Let's go to questions. Um, 
There are a lot. All right, I'm going to go right to the back. And please, can you say who you are? We are always interested. Uh, thank you for your lecture, uh, Professor Sen, and I'm Gori Jie from Statistical Department. Sorry for the statistics from China, <laughs> from 12 to 91. <laughs> and I have a question, uh, because I had some uh, experience in extreme uh, poor places in China, and uh, people lived there. They, they live basically in a very re uh, remote area, and they are extremely poor. They also receive some fundings from government is 20, uh, 50 RMB per month, which is uh, which equals to five pounds per month. But do you think this kind of direct uh, help, um, di direct funding will help them get out of poverty? Because to my, in my opinion, I think maybe it will be better to involve them into the economy because they live in a really remote area. They don't sell and they don't uh, work in, for the, in the whole society. So do you think uh, this kind of direct funding from government will help them out? Thank you. Well, I think what will help them out is the activism of the government in extending public services. I agree they have been very slow, and it was immediately it was more on the coastal side, on the, on the east, and it reached very slowly elsewhere. And there were deficiencies in the, in the delivery. One of the things, one of the few things on which Indians were ahead of the Chinese is to have um, a, a European model, midday meals, classic European way of dealing with making education attractive as well as healthcare better. And India did that, and those states which have good administration, like Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Himachal Pradesh, did brilliantly out of that. The Chinese didn't have it at all. Lunch. No, <laughs> nothing like that. You had lunch if you want, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you had to carry that yourself, or, and all the others. But this was becoming discussed, and if I may, uh, I mean, I was very privileged to be involved in discussion. There's, an organization called China Development, uh, uh, CRDF, China Research Development Foundation, I think, or China Research Foundation, I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, and um, and we, um, I was invited to talk about that, and we did. Now, one of the interesting things is now the mid-the-meal system is um, it's become very extensive in all over China. Similarly, the Chinese didn't have, as India did, preschool intervention. And now that's also something they've taken up. So in general, I mean, these are not public discussion. These are elite discussing. Institution, expert, WHO, and UNICEF, and talking about it. But the result is that there have been much more response to providing health care to all. Now, you know, the contrast is there. hundred. Nevertheless, China had 100% immunization. India has 30% less than that. Uh, even Bangladesh had 96%. Uh, there are all kinds of ways that the Indian... And, and if you look at the, some states uh, in India, like Kerala, Tamil Nadu, etc., they're pretty well there. In fact, they have life expectancy uh, uh, longer than that in China. But if you look at the Indian average, then you recognize how much concentrated it is into 
uh, about 40% of the Indian people. And uh, they're really absolutely dreadful thing. So the contrast that you point out in China is serious and deserves attention. The contrast within India is even sharper. And they, I'm not praising China for having the contrast, but I'm praising China for trying to do something about trying to remove the contrast. And there, I think the Chinese record is very considerably better than that of India. Interesting. Thank you. Here, here in the front. Thank you. I'm Julia Onwin. I'm the Chief Executive of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. I want to thank you for that very profound and inspiring lecture, which I really enjoyed. You referred to the ignorance of poverty and people in poverty, which we would describe, certainly in the UK and the United States, as a sort of willful ignorance. There is no reason I'm to sure be ignorant. As I grow older, I'm getting hard of hearing. Can you hold it? Oh, sorry. I would describe the ignorance... I was ignorance giving a hearing aid, actually. <laughs> and then I put it, and I could hear everyone so loudly. <laughs> and I went to Trinity High Table, and I found myself eavesdropping far away. <laughs> I felt so ashamed that I took it out and don't use it often, but I should have today. <laughs> yeah. okay. I'm so intrigued by that. I will try and answer. I'll try and continue. You talked about ignorance in your lecture, and I think in the United States, the United Kingdom, and indeed in Europe, we'd say there's a willful ignorance, there's a social distance that makes it possible to treat poor people as invisible. And I wonder if you could reflect on the voices of people who are poor, because it is hard to see social change taking place without movement and anger by people affected. And yet poor people, as Robert Walker's told us, across the world feel ashamed. We have no proud to be poor movement. We don't hear those angry voices. We tend to hear people speaking on behalf of poor people. In your experience, is there any growing movement anywhere of poor people speaking for themselves? Well, you know, I think there are two things. First of all, um, poor people must speak for themselves that we agree, and there's a whole literature on the voices of the poor, uh, and have been a lot discussed, and, and they're quite effective, and um, many of the changes in India was um, connected with these movements, like the Right to Food movement. Uh, I've been privileged to give lectures to the public meetings on that, wearing my uh, hats not as a university teacher, but as, a, as, a, as an agitator. Uh, but these were very poor people. Uh, and these have had some major effect. Even the midday meal came after severe uh, um, attempt at, at the poor people's voice being heard. Um, I think, However, it would be a mistake to assume that it's only the job of the poor people to do that. That's what I'm trying to avoid. I take, I'm afraid, a uh, rather Smithian view, Adam Smithian view, that if others are not able to sympathize, there's something wrong in them. And there is a need for, and that's why you brought the whole subject of impartial spectator. And I do think that I, I don't actually accept that the people are deliberately uh, trying to keep it out. I think you have to, it's, I, I can't hear, but you have to shout at my ears. So similarly, you have to shout at the ears of the rich to, to see how terrible it is. But when you do, it does. I think the famine victim thing is a very good case. 
something which affects 5 to 10% of the people. How come? It's such an electoral dynamite. British Empire began with a big famine in 1776, 1770, uh, 1770 uh, and uh, uh, Adam Smith provided one of the brilliant analysis of that famine ended with another famine uh, in 1943, which I happened to see, and all the period it went on having it. I think the big difference wasn't so much who was running it, but there wasn't a democracy, that there was no way you could suppress it. For example, the Bengal famine was completely suppressed uh, by the censorship on grounds that the Japanese were in Burma, this would be responsible. And while the Indian papers were forcibly censored. The English paper called The Statesman in Calcutta didn't have that. It was left to them. And it was Ian Stevens who was as editor with a wonderful book called The Monsoon Morning. After some time he decided that he was completely failing as, in, as a journalist and broke the silence on that and, and made tremendous attacks in the third week of October of the famine of 43. It was discussed in, in the parliament in Westminster within 10 days, and famine relief began within 10 days of that, and the famine was effectively over by the end of, of the next month. Now, I think all that is required, that level of information. I think there are very few people who would actually resist uh, hearing if you can spread it. So I'm taking what may be taken as a naive view. Uh, I don't think it's that naive. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Good man here. Hello. I'm Samuel from the Comparative Politics uh, degree. Uh, so you talked a lot about the effects of political structures on the resolution of the problem of poverty. I would like to have your thoughts on... Um, economic structures. Uh, shouldn't we also put into question the economic structures that are well established, implanted in our world today? Uh, that is to say, for example, the neoliberal concept. Uh, uh, yeah. I just would like to have your thoughts on, 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 on these economic structures. Thank you. You see, I think those who invented the term neoliberalism had some serious thought in mind. And at some level you can do that. Uh, and and it, it's worth doing. It's a very good classroom exercise. But bringing in neoliberalism into explaining what's gone wrong in India, I think, would be a huge mistake. They're not neoliberal. They're all interventionists of various kinds. And I think it's like, um, it's like fighting American imperialism, which had led to the demise of the Indian Communist Party. Because... Now that the Soviet Union and Gaul and the Chinese are beating the Americans in market competition, the Vietnamese and the Latin Americans are racing ahead in, in global intercourse. The, the mantle on resisting American imperialism fell on the Indian left. And the result of it was that if you have to discuss bad schools and bad health care by blaming the Americans, you don't get very far in that story at all. So that is not to say that the American imperialism doesn't exist, it does exist in some much more sophisticated form. But the naivety of an antiquated theory of imperialism going back as if it's 1905 and, uh, you know, uh, 
and, and, and a book called Imperialism just being published, um, that would be a huge mistake. I think neoliberalism at some level can provide much meat for discussion, and I'm in favor of that, putting on my head hat as a, as a, as a teacher. But in the context of the public debate, it has only had the effect of marginalizing the voice that we miss most now in India, namely that of the left. Because by a series of cunning moves, the left Communist Party had succeeded in reducing its representation in Parliament dramatically. <laughs> and that is not to the interests of India, because that voice needs to be heard, because that is the natural clientele. That's what the Vietnamese, that, that's what the Chinese Communist Party did. That's what the Japanese Communist Party did too. So I think one has to see what's the context. There is a context in which neoliberalism is very worth discussing. But the use of neoliberalism to cover up what is, I'm not accusing you of covering up, but you are commenting on it, uh, uh, cover up a complete lacuna on the part of the government to, of a certain kind of intervention, doing other kind of intervention. They're not neoliberals in any sense. Had they been neoliberals, then the, the voice would not be so strong in the business quarter in India. They want more reform. And uh, by the way, I agree with them. They, they ought to have more reform. There are a lot of things that the red tape is, is absolutely terrible. It's not a neoliberal folly. So I think the possibility of mixing up different kinds of follies is really very strong. Thank you very much. Can we get a microphone to a woman in the front here? No, 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 we need it for the, for the record. Would you forgive me? Um, thank you very much, Professor, for your wonderful lecture. Um, could you, could you say your name? Right. My name is Sana Musharraf, Indian origin, bloodlines, but born and raised as a consequence in Pakistan, twist of fate and history. Um, <laughs> uh, and currently at the LSE in the Department of Law doing a degree in law and accounting. I wanted to ask you somewhat two philosophical questions related to poverty, sir. Yeah. Having seen uh, poverty both in the developed and the developing country, um, is poverty a consequence of injustice? One. Second, <laughs> and is poverty actually as the world or the developed world calls poverty as a measure of wealth or is it actually a mindset? Poverty, is it a mindset distinguishing or not distinguishing between wealth and richness or is poverty actually the definition by those who somehow have some degree of superiority by virtue of some nature? As, I mean, just as a human nature. Um, LSE might feel superior to University of Warwick, for example. <laughs> Warwick, forgive me, I have no offense with the University of Warwick, <laughs> if there are anyone, anyone associated with that. But just, just two basic questions, sir, because having seen it as a part of the developed world and having lived through the developing world, these questions just make me further lost. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. You know, I think... Um, Poverty and injustice must be very closely related. It's not the only kind of injustice. When somebody is arrested um, by an authoritarian state and, and kept in prison and tortured, there's injustice of a kind that's not connected with poverty, that's connected with persecution. 
On the other hand, is poverty a very important ingredient of injustice? Yes. Would it be right to say injustice is the cause of poverty? I think that's what you suggested. I'm not sure that I see the reasoning there. I think the same unacceptable phenomenon involving poverty may be described as unjust and therefore they're part of injustice. But to say injustice is causing it is, is, is not clear which is the, how the reasoning there would go. Uh, is it not, uh, you know, we all, you and I are both trained at academic institutions and we can perhaps bring out a connection which would work. But it's not a natural way of thinking about it. Injustice is, uh, you know, like um, uh, 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 I don't know, if you, if you want to say that um, um, uh, obesity or, uh, or smoking uh, uh, produces very bad health. I don't think right, it would be right to say very bad health produces smoking and, uh, and obesity. They are connected. So if I may try to persuade you to get out of the one precedes the other, to treat them simultaneously, yes. Is a mindset issue involved your second question? Sometimes it is. Sometimes people's inability to stand up. This question came up when the voice of four came up also. And the sense of despair could be very important. And you need to change the mindset. Sure. On the other hand, is mindset a precondition for poverty and injustice? I think not. Lots of people who don't have that mindset do suffer from poverty simply because they haven't got a job, they haven't been well educated, they haven't got health care, and nothing to do with mindset. And to bring in the mindset there would be unfortunate because it's not blaming the proximate reasons for the deprivation of the people involved. So yes, there are complicated relationships involving mindset as well as injustice connected with poverty, but they are not a kind of causal linkage of A leads to B in a way that someone might think you were trying to suggest. I don't believe you were. Thank you. Woman of red here at the back. Um, can we get a microphone after that to the... Uh uh, the man there with his hand up. And I have to say, bids for questions are coming almost as fast as applications for tickets. Two and we're in there. Two <laughs> persons with ready microphone right now. Yeah, so we'll, we'll go with these ones. Um, my name's Parvati Menon, and I'm, uh, um, I work for the Hindu newspaper. Uh, thank you, Professor Sen, for that, uh, uh, for your talk on poverty. Uh, you know, recently you were in India and you spoke at the Jaipur Festival, Literary Festival, and you said that you had a wish list for India, seven wishes for India, and the first of these was a government at the center uh, that is pro-market, um, pro-private investment, but that is secular. That is? That is secular, secular. That, that was your, uh, you know, the first in your wish list, no. uh, as, as was reported it was in the media. It was second, it was second in my Oh, wish. second, <laughs> sorry. 
Sorry, the media reported it as the first. Um, how do you think a government, I mean, we're going in for elections in 2014, uh, this year. How do you think that, uh, I mean, you know, since uh, for the last uh, 20 years, we've had pro-private investment, pro-market governments, secular and non-secular at the center. How do you think a government like that uh, could, could lead these, you know, uh, could lead the attack, if you will, on poverty, um, which certainly is, you know, the biggest issue facing, uh, when you've talked about the media, the failure of the media, the middle class, uh, but how do you think a government um, that is pro-market and, uh, you know, could, yeah, and that they, has failed in the past, they, but I'm really curious. How no. bad the Indian media coverage is. No, no, you're right. <laughs> uh, I agree. I mean, say, we're, we're, <laughs> what I said on that second answer, yeah. uh, I said that it would be nice to have a right-wing pro-business party that is not communal, that not, does not terrorize the minority, Muslims in this case, and that does not have uh, responsibility of, the, of what happened in 2002. And it's unfortunate that those who want full business, since there's no full business party, unlike Sotantel, has to support something else with which they may not be in, in, uh, in sympathy at all. All this was, by the way, uh, it was a conversation uh, I was having with someone who had promised to give me seven wishes. Uh, and she asked me, would that be your favorite party? I said, no, absolutely not. But I would like the Indians to have a choice on that. I would never vote for such a party. But as an, a member of the, as an Indian citizen, I would like people's choice of right-wing pro-business position not to be integrally linked with, a, with religious politics, privileging one religious community or others. And then I went, went on to discuss uh, why it's important that the left should have a voice, which is what we were discussing. Mm. Roughly what I said is what was another question connected with it. So I'm not sure quite, uh, if you're asking me, am I arguing for such a party? Uh, absolutely not. Did several media report me as that? Absolutely. <laughs> Did any of the newspaper carry all seven of my wishes and discussion in reasonable prose. Yes, DNA did. The Telegraph is doing it on Saturday. The Penguin is publishing it, what they call a single, coming out on Friday. So you can look at that. <laughs> I, think, I think you got away lightly. Okay. Uh, thank you for your talk, Professor Sen. Uh, I'm Florian Mockel from the Economics Department. Um, you spoke a lot about poverty being caused or sort of as a um, consequence of a lack of state provision of services um, such as healthcare and education, um, and particularly in Asia. But when you look at Africa, there's a lot of poverty going on as a consequence of civil conflict and, and war. And the consequences of these, of, of the poverty there, are often also being then carried to Europe, where, I mean, just last month people died off the coast um, of Italy with Europeans sort of watching on but not doing anything. Um, and you could also argue that sort of these civil conflicts are a lot more connected to Europe than maybe the lack of government information, uh, intervention in, in Asia would be. Where do you sort of see the role of the developed world and particularly Europe um, 
in well with respect to poverty in Africa particularly caused by by civil war and do you think the debate in Europe about what sort of the responsibility of the developed world would be um, is going in the right direction or whether there would need to be a fundamental change of, um, of direction? Well, the developed world has a lot of things to think about. Uh, it includes, has, I think there is a need to think about the, to what extent there are global commitments and what are the demands of global citizenship. There is a need to consider the issue of um, refugees as well as um, uh, you know, um, persecuted people. There's also the Cold War was fought on the continent of Africa, you might remember. And that is, well, you won't remember, you were not born. But um, those of us who were born, we remember. Uh, and no matter how dictatorial, if it were pro-Soviet, it had support from the Soviet Union if it was pro-American, from the Americans and the British, too. And the continent, which began with the promise of democracy, first time I went to Africa, early 60s, suddenly changed into a continent of just war with each other, dividing uh, uh, in the lines of the Cold War of that period. That's history. Are there things going on now? Yes, there are quite a lot. But, you know, it would take me so far away from what I've been talking about in this lecture that that has to be another occasion when you and I could chat on that. <laughs> Thank you. Question here. Uh, Stuart Prophet, Penguin Books, uh, and I'm Amartya's editor. Um, <laughs> Amatya, you began your lecture by saying that poverty exists in every country. What, um, is there any gain to be had by comparing uh, levels of poverty and the way in which poverty is treated in developing countries and fully developed countries? And secondly, how effectively do you think European governments are dealing with poverty in their own countries? Well, I, I personally think that um, uh, European government uh, policies generally, I know that I go against the dominant view in, the, in, the, in, in, in Britain as well as in Europe. Uh, I think the, the way of handling the economic crisis is, has been very unfortunate for, for, for poverty and indeed for the long run future of Europe, as I did say I know that whenever the growth rate here goes up from one and a half to two percent, there's enormous cheer comes out. Just as the Indians keep weeping whenever the growth rate is six percent. Admittedly, the totals are larger here, but there is no particular reason why Europe should not be going much faster than they have in the past. And I think the policies, no matter how limited success them, some country might have had, but a bit more than than Spain, and so on. Um, the fact is that there had been, in some ways, a neglect of the, what I see as the basic Adam Smithian link of the quality of humanity and the economic performance. As at one of his passages in The Wealth of Nations, Smith asked the question, why do you want good political economy? 
And then he said, well, that's mostly what in our terms today we'll say we need high economic growth. And why is high economic growth important? And Smith goes on to say, it's important, one, because it increases people's income. And he's quite careful there. And there, this allows people, not because they become richer, but it allows them, gives them the capability, it didn't use the language, but he's talking about that, to pursue those goals to which they would attach importance, of which we know the hunger would be one. And two, it increases money in the hands of the government, which allows the government to do those things which only the government can do. This is Adam Smith, World of Nations. So that's one line which comes through everywhere. And he looks at long-run economic growth is ultimately connected with um, skill formation. That's where the economy of large scale is important. And for those who are economists here, the difference between the Ricardian and the Smithian model of growth, the Ricardian model is comparative cost Smiths, it doesn't matter. Same, all countries may have the same resources, just that specialization increases your productivity. Then he goes on to, however, go on to the subtler issue that Smith was concerned with, how a specialization has a demerit. Some people have done nothing other than looking at the F pinhead, and they have become very, very good at it, but there is a cost to it. So, I mean, as always, as a broad humanity is discussing that. But what he's not moving away from is the role of the quality of human labor. Now, if you cut out, I mean, in America, of course, there is a health care issue, which in Europe is far less. But there is an issue about social security. There is an issue about unemployed, uh, uh, you know, what unemployment of the young do to the, uh, uh, to the, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, ability to produce of people. When these people, you know, uh, Greece may have 60% youth unemployment and Spain may have 40% uh, youth unemployment. The, it's not just how much they suffer, but the enormous impact of that and the future of economic expansion. I think Europe had not thought through that very much, nor has America very much. Uh, I think Asia had been much better in this respect. Uh, or, and, and Latin America too. I mean, they've been much more thought, even though Brazil is going through a bad time right now. They've given certainly much more in the literature on that than you see in, in Europe and America today. So that's the way I would look at it. And, you know, people worry that uh, I saw today this morning that um, young people more and more are staying with their parents. Uh, that's not necessarily demeaning Jesus stayed with his mother. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, on the other hand, it shows a certain amount of lack of means and lack of ability to do things, which is really has not an immediate consequence, but also long-run consequence. That's really worrying. And, and I think each country, you know, Europe probably are never going to be the same that of India or China or, or Thailand. Uh, and uh, I don't think Europe had much to learn from any of these countries. On the other hand, Europe has its own problem, and I wish I could say that I get evidence that they have thought through that very clearly. I don't. Thank you. I'm going to squeeze in one quick last question. How much does it matter who wins this year's election in India? Oh, it matters a huge amount. Uh, because uh, 
I think the tragedy for many of us is, of course, that they, I mean, the voice of the left is so totally reduced. Because uh, I think the, the party that we would look to is not a right-wing secular party, as far as even attributing my view to me, <laughs> but the party of the left, who have been the party of the underdogs of society. But they are very diminished, and from all accounts, they would be even further diminished after this election. Indeed. And on the other hand, the upswing is that of right-wing, on top of that, right-wing not only of pro-business kind, and which of course can do a lot of harm, but combined with a religious, sectarian, mm. communal division of the Indian population, it could be absolutely frightful. So I think the lot depends on the election, mm. sure. Mm. Are there many good outcomes? No, there are less worse outcomes than worse outcomes. I guess that was what I was fishing for. Thank you. <laughs> Um, Thank you. Um, Thank you to the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Thank you to the London School of Economics. Thank you for being a fantastic audience with a great range of questions and for your absorption. Thank you to all the people who are not in this hall but watching. And above all, thank you to Amartya, or as he does not much like to be called, Professor Sen. Thank you.